Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. This episode is a special Dig Extra. It's audio from a recent Zoom forum that I moderated with leading defund police activists from all across the country. I moderated the discussion in my capacity as co-chair of the new organization Reclaim RI, which I co-founded with a bunch of core volunteer leaders from Rhode Island's Bernie 2020 campaign. Our goal is to politically and economically transform our diverse, working class, and rather tiny state. This discussion, which has defund police organizers who are just incredibly talented from all over the place, was really stellar, and I think it's a great resource for all of you fighting to defund the police wherever you live. If you do happen to live in Rhode Island and want to support our work for a people's budget here, both at the state and city level, I will include a link to our petition in the show notes. Briefly, before we get started, two things. First, antibody, our first attempt to do socialist this American life, has come to an end for now. Stories from day laborers in prison and Amazon warehouse workers in New York City hospitals, on Kropotkin and mutual aid and D&D, and a lot more. I'm really proud of what we put together. Please do take a listen if you haven't yet, and please do share it with anyone who might like it. We'll likely do more of this sort of narrative stuff in the future, depending on time and funding. It might even still be called antibody. Anyhow, I'm really grateful to everyone who supports us on Patreon for making antibody possible. We could not have done it without your contributions. I will link to antibody in the show notes in case you missed it. And then second, I have this new lengthy essay that I think you'll like up at Jacobin. I've been working on it since February, and I've revised it continuously as all of these world historical events have been washing over us all. It's about Trump's authoritarianism, corona, the uprisings, and the liberal complicity and denial of Trump's origins in ordinary bipartisan security and law and order politics. I will link to that essay in the show notes. Okay, this audio from the Zoom forum starts with Kimberly DeCoupe, a Reclaim RI Steering Committee member and Providence DSA co-chair, and Reclaim RI activist Ariel Tavares explaining our fight in Rhode Island and in Providence for people's budgets on the city and state level. Then comes my longer conversation with Candace Montgomery from Black Visions, Mercedes Fulbright from Texas Working Families, Dee Dee Jackson from BYP 100, Kia Bryant from DARE, Akili from Black Lives Matter LA, and Chicago Socialist Alderman Rosana Rodriguez Sanchez. You'll hear me introduce them at greater length a few minutes from now. Also, this discussion was on Zoom, so the audio is kind of crappy, but the conversation is great. Thanks for listening. everyone. Thank you for taking the time to be here. My name is Ariel. I am from Providence RI, just graduated from PC with a couple degrees that make me feel way more 
that my debt was worth it. <laughs> so I'm very new to this organization, about two weeks old, not an expert on race or politics, but I'm an expert on my experience and how it's been shaped by the two. So our governor, Gina Raimondo, she has announced that there is an $800 million deficit in our eyes budget. To mend this deficit, she said that nothing is safe for being on the chopping block while our teachers are struggling as well as social services. Uh, the state spending on the state police is proposed to be 91 million. There's 35 for new state police barracks and 2 million for upgrading the state police training school. The total spending on DOC is to be over 266. So this austerity budget notably includes huge cuts to state funding that goes to cities, places predominantly full of working class and communities of color, including the place that I've lived in my entire life. So one of our amazing members, Tal, said that budgets are moral documents. They show where the state's priorities lie and whose interests they're willing to protect. The first item on Reclaim RI's agenda is focused on the state budget, not letting the General Assembly push austerity that will only punish the poor working class Rhode Islanders who have already suffered the most. We actually started circulating a petition earlier today, which has gotten a lot of um, signatures already, and it calls for taxing the wealthy, no cuts to programs, and of course, defunding the police. So now I'm going to switch it over to Kimberly, who's going to give um, more of a brief on the city budget and how it relates to defunding the police um, specifically. Um, so yeah, any cuts that are made um, to the state budget will obviously uh, affect um, the social services for like cities like Providence, Central Falls. Um, it's been said about Central Falls mayors that's very hard to be, well, it's been said about actually Rhode Island may mayors that it's, been, it's hard to be a mayor in Rhode Island because the state money is so uh, important to whether you can run the social services that make people's lives um, worth living. Um, and then uh, one of the things that we're really looking at is how the city budget is being spent. 17% um, of the city budget is going to the police right now. Um, and so that's one of the things that we can really take a look at, especially if we want to um, follow up on the policy of defunding the police um, and maybe putting those resources towards social services that people need, especially when we know that the state is gonna is looking to make cuts um, to these necessary um, services. Um, yeah. Thanks, Kimberly and Ariel. Um, all right, well, we're going to uh, get the discussion started. This is, um, there's an incredible amount of work being done all over the country, and we invited uh, people who are doing that work all over the place. And I'm going to briefly introduce them, and then we're going to have a discussion so that people can share notes and learn how to defund the police, which is the idea. Um, First, we have Candace Montgomery, who is the director of Black Visions and a Black queer organizer, facilitator, and strategist who's working to expand our collective ability to build power that transforms systems and people. Currently living in Minneapolis, she has spent the last decade developing programming, training, and strategies that center their lives of people of color at local, statewide, and national organizations. We also have Mercedes Fulbright, the organizing director with the Texas Working Families Party and a founding member of the Dallas chapter of BYP 100. She is a political strategist with the Electoral Justice Project within the Movement for Black Lives. Um, we, uh, I'm not sure if he has arrived yet, but we will hopefully have Akili 
who is the director of the Fannie Lou Hamer Institute and an organizer with Black Lives Matter LA. Um, we have Rosana Rodriguez Sanchez, who is a uh, brown Boricua socialist mother with a thick accent. I am reading her bio here <laughs> um, she, that she presented me with. She's a member of, of course, of the Chicago City Council trying to defund police and fund our lives. Kia Bryant, a black woman from Providence fighting to take back her community, who is also the managing director of the Rhode Island group DARE, Direct Action for Rights and Equality. And then finally, Dee Dee Jackson, who is the national director of BYP 100, who became, first became active at the height of the murder of Trayvon Martin in the Zimmerman verdict with Dream Defenders. She is currently co-director of Ignite NC and co-founder of the Durham chapter of BYP 100. Um, thank you all very much for joining us. And uh, to start off, what do you think can be won right now amid this historic national uprising? And, and how are you going about winning it in your city? Um, we can start with uh, Didi. Uh, hey, everybody. I hope y'all can hear me good. Yes. Okay, great. Um, thank you for having me. Really honored to be here. And I love talking about taking money away from the police. So um, I have been part of a campaign. Uh, I'm based in Durham uh, called Durham Beyond Policing. And I'm gonna drop the link in the chat so folks can learn more about it. But we build a, a campaign in, in response to the construction of a $71 million police headquarters that has since been built in our city. Uh, but we felt it necessary to come together and build a campaign that was really pushing for um, begging the question, what is a Durham beyond policing? Um, and pushing on this divest invest framework, divesting from the police and prisons and investing into our communities. Uh, and so myself, along with many other black um, and brown uh, queer and trans uh, folks in Durham that were already organizing came together and built up uh, this campaign. Um, since, since then, uh, we have, last year, we, we successfully stopped the uh, expansion of our police department our police uh, department had came with a proposal to add 72 new cops to the force. And we were like, well, instead of se adding 72 new cops to the force, why don't, you, why don't you hire 72 community members to build up a community safety and wellness task force as an alternative to policing in our communities? And in this um, task force proposal, it includes um, actual responses to, to, to mental health crisis, um, actual responses to, um, to harm and, 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 and conflict. Um, so really wanting to make sure that we push forward a proposal while also, while also pushing, uh, pushing back against the expansion of the police department. And so last year we successfully organized uh, for our city to vote against adding the 72 new cops to the force. Um, and also uh, this year they agreed to adopt our, our proposal um, for a community safety and wellness task force. It is not perfect um, and we're still pushing on it at the level of the school district and at our county level, uh, but it was a big win. It was a big win for us um, in, in Durham, but the, the struggle definitely continues. 
That's all. Uh, thanks, Judy. Kia? Hey, y'all. Um, so in Providence, the organizing scene is um, very small and tight-knit. Um, but I think defunding is definitely something that could happen here. Um, I can see it. I can feel um, a difference in the air here. Um, but I think what I've been seeing mostly is a birth of a new movement for us, something that we really haven't seen for a while. Um, and many folks, many black folks specifically, um, their minds are, are changing and they're kind of waking up to um, the a lot of the injustices that have been happening um, around Providence. So, yeah. yeah, hi everyone. My name is Candace Montgomery. Um, you, she, and they pronouns. I'm the director of Black Visions. Um, you know, for us, Black Visions really came out of the movement for Black Lives. Many of us helped to found and start the Black Lives Matter Minneapolis chapter here and um, bring the conversation to Minnesota in a really different way and especially in a way that was like truly unapologetically Black. Um, and in 2017, a set of us after sort of the like first, you know, the, the wave of energy um, decided to come together to build an organization um, so that we could be sustainable and strategic and visionary. Um, and I really think that this is, that's indicative in this moment. Um, we have from the beginning been calling on um, issues around policing um, and in 2018 began um, specifically calling to divest from um, the Minneapolis Police Department and invest in community-led safety solutions as well as the other things that we know keep our folks safe like housing and things like that. That first year we were able to move 1.1 million out of the police department um, and into um, one opening the Office of Violence Prevention um, that basically re-grants to smaller community organizations that are doing sort of like street level safety interventions um, and um, some other things. And then the next year we lost <laughs> and our mayor actually increased the budget by 8.1 million um, and, you know, created a smear campaign that like the city was getting more dangerous and blah, blah, blah. Um, and so in this moment, you know, after the murder of George Floyd, it was really clear what the demand needed to be, um, a demand that like doesn't just feed into sort of the carceral system um, and, and, and that asking for the arrest or the accountability, quote unquote, of these officers. Um, and, you know, what we, I think a lot's possible in this year. Um, I think like defunding our police is possible. I know folks are also talking about like abolishing slavery off of like state constitutions, um, all of those things. I think the other thing that like I'm really trying to enter into the conversation more is what can we build in this year? You know, in Minneapolis, we, we waste $193 million on policing every year. And like, that's a lot, you know, we spend 40 million, for example, on affordable housing. Um, we spend 0.01% on public health of the, the, of what we spent on the police. And so I think that like in at the other end of defunding the Minneapolis police department and police departments all across the country, we also have an opportunity to work with other folks across issues to actually get the resources and build up not just like alternatives to safety, um, but also like the other things that we know keep our folks safe, like the real resources to keep our lives um, well. 
And so that feels like what is like most possible is to like bring everybody into that conversation. Mercedes, what's going on in Dallas? Well, so many things. Um, yeah, so um, I, I just want to give some context to like how we got to 10 council members out of 14 committing to uh, defunding the Dallas Police Department in this, in this fall fiscal year budget. Um, in 2016, um, for many folks, they may know that um, I think it was nine officers that were killed um, during a protest that happened. And from there, our police chief, David Brown, retired. And we started the conversations around uh, reimagining public safety, um, understanding that um, that event was going to cause the city to want to counter with more money for policing and to protect police and protect um, the institution of policing. Um, and so as we were looking for a new police chief, um, we were having uh, conversations and holding budget hearings in collaboration with city council members across the city and our district, um, trying to help folks um, understand and see that there are alternatives that city council isn't listening to or considering. Um, and so I remember in 2016, us having the conversation about what does safety look like to you? And uh, folks in communities never naming police, prisons, or guns as forms of safety for them. Um, and us doing that with city council members and the director of public safety um, person being in the room. And from there, uh, we laid the groundwork for much of the conversations that have happened every year uh, when our city council approved the budget around trying to divest um, from the Dallas Police Department. Um, last summer, um, we launched a coalition called Our City, Our Future um, in response to um, the governor deploying state troopers in South Dallas, where I live, uh, who were harassing and ended up actually killing um, a black man um, on the street because he made a he didn't make a left turn or something he he, he did something that was ridiculous in a traffic in traffic infraction um, and there was no accountability around the state troopers and the Dallas Police Department um, within that and so uh, we started to push again this conversation of reimagining public safety like this is not what we need um, and their response to deploying those state troopers was. Um, our city had reached the highest crime rate in the last 30 years um, last summer. And so we knew that fall they were going to push for another increase. And that increase um, ended up with us uh, having a half a million, um, excuse me, yeah, half a billion dollar uh, budget that DPD now receives. Um, and so 60% of our $1.3 billion budget goes to public safety, which does include fire uh, and EMP, uh, but majority of that goes to policing. Um, and so we lost the budget fight last fall, but now that we have this terrain that Minneapolis has created for us, um, over the last 20 days, we've had nonstop protests. Folks are taking the streets every single day, and we've created this pressure point for our city council members to do something different. Um, you know, what happened to George Floyd is something that happened here with Boston Jean, right? Like, we, we have officers who are coming into folks' homes in the same way that they did with Breonna Taylor. Um, and, and killing them and still increasing the police budget. Um, and so a few days after George Floyd was killed, um, I reached out to uh, organizers here who have been leading this work for about a decade now, Mothers Against Police Brutality, and said, how can we add capacity to the work that you all have been doing here on this particular issue? And so we launched the coalition in defense of Black Lives Dallas. And from there, um, found Black, queer, trans, indigenous, people of color, folks across the city who uh, believe and understood what it meant to divest from policing and the urgent need for us to come together to fight for that. And so um, 
that first Sunday, I believe it was uh, June 1st. I can't remember the date right now. Uh, but we held a vigil where a thousand folks showed up and uh, we created a public altar and, um, and said their name, said her name, said his name. And um, from there, launched our demands and uh, released an online petition that now has over 22,000 people who believe in divesting from policing and investing in community health and safety measures. And we went into a week of action uh, from that vigil where we did banner drops, where we stopped our busiest highway um, in acknowledgement of Breonna Taylor's birthday because no one was talking about it in our city, where we um, um, had folks uh, sign up, over 200 people sign up for the city council, special city council meeting that our mayor held um, demanding that they defund DPD and that they tell the um, Chief Hall, our, our current police chief, to stand down because um, every time that we've had a protest, DPD has incited violence. They have escalated uh, violence in the streets. There is a point about, uh, I think, two Mondays ago where they arrested over 641 people on a bridge. They actually entrapped them on one of our bridges and uh, arrested um, all these protesters. Um, and so in those calls and those demands, city council members were hearing not only from the 23,000 people that signed this petition, but folks on the ground who were blowing up their lines, blowing up their emails, um, letting them know that this, this divesting from police has to happen and it has to happen now. Um, and so today, uh, city manager presented a budget that is supposed to take into consideration what folks have been saying on the ground. Um, and at this point, they are wanting to present a budget that is supposed to balance. They're, they're using words like reimagine. They're not saying defund. They're using words like reallocate. It's fine as long as they know that we are not going to increase the police budget. Um, um, they also um, took a vote last week where they actually delayed $6.7 million increase to uh, the police budget um, in overtime um, because of our calls for them to defund DPD. Um, and so we're really excited. We have to keep the pressure. The way that we're shifting now is doing political education in the streets and online on Zoom um, and to translate that into people's assemblies because we also recognize that the narrative around defunding is starting to get watered down into police reforms and going back to oversight boards, which a lot of people in our city have been fighting for and want to continue to spend money on. Um, and so we think it's important to get in front of our folks and to continue to push this abolitionist vision and practice around uh, defunding DPD every fiscal year. Um, and also reminding folks that there's an election cycle coming up. And so these folks don't actually do what they need to do this fall. We're gonna unelect them in May and get our folks into office and continue to uh, keep the folks that we need in office who believe um, in this abolitionist practice of defunding the police department. Thank you, Mercedes. Uh, Achille is with us um, now from Los Angeles. Um, if you want to uh, jump in, the, the opening question is just what this moment of mass uprising, this historic uprising, what opportunities it presents and how are you going about, about winning it in LA? Um, a couple of things. This opening that we have first comes at a, uh, a major cost. Um, and it's, it's more than any group of people should have to pay. It is, it comes at the brutal death of black people. It, that's what it has taken to move white America to accept and understand that there's not, there's not only institutional racism, there's white supremacy, institutional racism, individual bigotry, and mass denial. The four conditions that black folks have to deal with, the mass denial one, is um, being a little less, you can lessened now because of what people saw with 
with um, with George Floyd. But the opening has created the kind of conditions where if if you've been doing the work, you've had some demands, uh, you've developed demands based on the people's interest, now is the time to introduce them. Now is the time to advance them. Now is the time to uh, to fight for them. And that's what has happened uh, here in L.A. The Black Lives Matter L.A. has been for the past five years opposing the police budget. Um, every year it comes out. Uh, in fact, we have been uh, centered around divest, invest. Uh, and so for us, this is nothing new. Uh, except now the voices are much more louder and much and much more. Uh, and in LA, we had developed a um, uh, a black LA demands that grew out of our demands as it related to COVID nineteen. That became the genesis of and connected to the people's budget. Uh, and once we found out the mayor was advancing, uh, uh, was trying to advance a, um, uh, a fast track of budget with a 7% increase for the police. Uh, we immediately opposed that. Other groups came on, um, uh, supported the black demands that we had been pushing, uh, and we developed a coalition. Right at the time that the resistance to uh, institutional racism was advancing. And so we have uh, been able to uh, reject the mayor's budget, resist it, and start now <clears throat> discussing and debating what does defunding the police look like? What does divesting and investing look like? We were able to put enough pressure on the, uh, on the mayor and the city council that they have a special hearing just for the people's budget. And now we are beginning to see some shifts. We're beginning to see some, um, some, uh, some forward movement in our direction, not far enough, not fast enough, but some movement. Um, and it has come in large part because of people have been on the street. Last Saturday, there were over 100,000 people at Hollywood and Highland, the critical center of, of Hollywood, the traffic, the, the tourist, tourist center of Hollywood. And that shut that area down. And they were chanting, defund the police and prosecute killer cops, which are the two demands that LA, uh, Black Lives LA has had. So we are, we, like I said, we are, we are advancing, we are um, mobilizing and continue to mobilize. As a matter of fact, they, we are likely to have thousands of people at our weekly uh, DA Jackie Lacey must go uh, protest. So um, this opening that, uh, that has been created by the death of black people, the brutal death of black people, and people willing to demonstrate their outrage and, and disgust at what they saw has provided uh, some rethinking. And I wanna uh, echo what you just said, Mercedes, part of our biggest struggle is that our language first is not appropriated. Now it's, it, it's almost uh, cliche. It's almost trendy to talk about, um, you know, well, first of all, Black Lives Matter. Look, you know, if, you, if you got a Black Lives Matter t-shirt, uh, it's worth a lot of money today. <laughs> you know? So it's trendy. And so they appropriate the language. 
<clears throat> and it makes them sound reasonable, it makes them sound like they're on your side. They, and these are the same police who have been killing us. These are the same police that, you know, that have been resistance to any change, any kind of change. All of a sudden, they are appropriating our language. The mayor is talking about being woke. He wasn't woke when he put that money in for the police. He wasn't woke when the police chief said uh, two weeks ago that the protesters had the blood of George Ford on, uh, Floyd on their hands. He wasn't woke then, so he ain't woke now. He just fronting. And so we're pushing back against that fronting, and we are uh, mobilizing and continuing the pressure of the people. I mean, to, to use that pressure of the people to advance the demands for completely defunding the police. Many of us in Black Lives Matter LA are abolitionists. Um, and we see the role uh, that we can play is to introduce the abolitionist discussion, uh, what it means and how we can achieve it and how we can advance it. So uh, things are moving, once again, not far enough, not fast enough, but they're moving. Thank you very much. Uh Alderman Rosanna Rodriguez Sanchez, you are a DSA member of Chicago City Council, um, a city council with, I believe, six socialists on it. Uh, say a little bit about what this all looks like from, from your perspective as a movement radical elected official. So in Chicago, we are having protests almost every day um, for the six socialists that are in city council. We have committed to making sure that we're pushing for the demands of the movement inside of city council. Um, there are a few more aldermen that are also progressive. Uh, I would say that we have probably around 10 aldermen in city council right now that are fully committed to a defund the police framework. Um, we still have a lot of work to do, particularly in the Progressive Caucus. I think people are trying to bring forward the idea of reform. Um, we have been very clear that even if you come from the framework of reform, you cannot reform the police without defunding it. Like there's, there's no such a thing. Um, uh, and, and besides, we have had enough attempts to reform that have spectacularly failed. Uh, we are not going to reform our way out of this problem. We definitely need to defund the police um, and invest in our lives. Um, so some of the things that we have been trying to do as we work with the movement to establish what are going to be the concrete demands for the budget that we're going to be discussing in the fall, um, Today, we introduced an ordinance to cancel the contract between CPD and CPS so that we can get rid of police in schools. Um, the Chicago police gets $33 million from CPS every year to pay for something they call school resource officers. We don't want police in schools. We don't want police near our children. We introduced an ordinance today. It was sent to the rules committee, but we have already had the conversations necessary to bring it, um, to reintroduce and have a joint committee hearing on them. Um, we are also talking about canceling the COP Academy that the mayor, when she was running, she vowed to say that she was not going to support um, but then she ended up saying yes to it. So that would be about $100 million invested in a, a, a training facility for police that we absolutely 
do not need particularly because we know that what we need to do is defund the police. <laughs> so we don't need that facility and we need to make sure that uh, that gets canceled. Um, and we are also talking about CPAC, which is um, community control over police. And that would also impact the budget of the police uh, and would give full control to communities um, over, over policing in Chicago. Um, that campaign is going really strong and we're seeing a lot of movement around it. Uh, the ordinance was introduced about 90, a little bit over 90, 90 days ago. Um, and we are, we're trying to push for it again. Um, so we have several measures that we are pushing for, but what we're gonna need is for movement to continue going strong. We clearly know that our council member colleagues in there, they are not going to be convinced of what is right because it's not convenient for them. Um, so we are going to have to force them <laughs> into this conversation. We're going to have to force them to do what we need them to do. And we think that we have an incredible window right now to push for that transformation, but we're going to have to do it from the inside and from the outside. Um, we're going to need a lot of pressure. I, ha I can say that uh, in my ward, I started a survey um, for people to say, because we were receiving so many emails. We were receiving thousands of emails telling us that they want to defund the police. So we decided to do a survey and uh, about 75% of the people who have answered the survey wants, want to defund the police in my ward. So this is an incredibly uh, popular um, uh, position right now. And we've never had this moment if we don't take advantage of it and we don't escalate uh, the pressure um, from the streets, like we need to continue because they don't because politicians don't respond to anything else. It, they just don't. So we have to continue making noise. We have to continue to pressure public officials. And from the inside, we're very committed to continuing to uh, to to demand these things unapologetically. We cannot allow them to water down the message. We cannot allow them to be with the yeah, let's divest and invest because. I think, I think one of the most important things is that we actually want to win meaningful, um, meaningful things, right? When we say defund the police, we're talking about meaningful cuts that are going to end up abolishing that awful institution. We don't want to divest 50 million. We don't want to divest 25 million. We don't want that. Chicago, in, Chicago spends $1.8 billion in policing. That's 40% of our total operational budget. That is wrong. And we're going to keep fighting from inside, uh, but we, we definitely have to do that with the support of, of movement and, and we cannot um, allow those conversations of like, oh, we need to build relationships and sort of get to consensus. That's not gonna happen. There's not gonna be consensus. We need to force them. Thank you very much, Alderman Rodriguez Sanchez. Um, the next question, and whoever wants to grab this first can, can go for it and then please also respond to each other and jump in. Uh, it's how, how have you utilized these, these organizations that you've built over the years in this moment of a mass uprising? Because organizers can only, it, these moments of, of mass uprising create incredible opportunities, but organizers cannot exactly control the entirety of, of their trajectory. That's Didi saying, Bando, go for it. Um. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think that that is like what feels um, really different and true in Minneapolis and in the Twin Cities right now is that like Black Visions, along with other Black organizations, especially since 2015, 2016, have been putting in the work to build our organizations, putting in work to train up our members, 
um, you know, to like get our politics aligned, to get our vision aligned, um, to have some real, you know, procedures, to have real infrastructure even to like try and get um, money for supplies and things like that back off on the ground. And so I think that that's some of the ways. And I think the biggest way is just like being in relationship, you know, like these council members we've been talking to for the last two, three years as an organization. Um, But we also get on a call with somewhere between 30 to 80 black abolitionists um, organizers every single day, like every single day. Um, And that is because our organization from our like get go has been committed to like being part of a larger ecosystem of organizations and black folks who are, who are really interested in, um, you know, moving a more radical conversation. So I think that it's like, it's multiple parts, but it really is about like, having a container that can hold relationships over the long term that then can be activated and utilized in these sort of uprising moments. Um, you know, just like to be able to like have that many black people be like, yeah, okay, cool. I'm getting on this call cause I'm an abolitionist and I know, and I trust these people and we've worked together before. Um, and we don't have to go through all of that while we're also trying to deal and navigate all of the different pieces of crisis, um, I think is really, really huge. Um, and I think it's like also helpful for us in Minnesota to reshape um, the face and the name of what black leadership looks like in our state. Um, we definitely struggle with sort of an old guard mentality um, of folks who are not always interested in all black lives mattering <laughs> transparently. And I've been told by them as a queer black woman that, 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 that this is not my fight. Right. Um, and to make sure that that leadership looks femme, looks trans, um, is like all across sort of the diaspora um, when it comes to blackness. Like I think also organization is able to do that and to assert like, hey, there are actually new leaders who are stepping up um, and y'all need to listen to them, you know, or Candace Montgomery and her homies going to yell at you too in the middle of thousands of people. Um, so I think that that's like one of the biggest things that we have been able to use and then being in relationship with other organizations who don't necessarily have as radical of a politic as us, or even like take on the issue of policing, but who are in housing and healthcare and all of these things and being able to be like, boom, y'all don't have to take all of this, but like you have to help paint the vision of what happens when we have millions more dollars to invest in housing. Um, and like tapping into those organizations that have also been doing the work um, for the long term to help take like take on these really big pieces of one large vision. Um, in that same vein, um, BYP $100, we're like the newest kids on the block in regards to an organization in the city. We launched last December. Um, and uh, many of the folks that are coming to our political home have been either activists or organizers in spaces that did not allow them to show up as their full authentic selves or um, be able to, you know, insert this abolitionist lens and Black queer feminist lens um, to the organizing ecosystem and infrastructure in the city. Um, and so I think what's really exciting about what's happening, one, we're showing uh, what organizing looks like in collaboration with other uh, folks, right? So this coalition that we have, there's about 15 organizations um, that are throwing down uh, we're also um, directing in many ways and like demanding the white folks that are showing up in the streets with us 
to be in service and in defense of black lives. And they're showing up in a way that I've never seen white people show up in organizing. Um, and so like, just like, just working in that vein has been really interesting for us. Um, and then we're also opening up this uh, lane and avenue for young black folks who have never seen an organization like BYP in the city of Dallas. Um, and so the number of folks who wanted to be a part of our chapter right now, uh, we get, in, I think, five emails a day. So we have about 100 folks that are constantly trying to figure out how can they become a member. Um, and in our city, like, uh, we definitely have, um, like, we're a part of the Black radical struggle here in the city of Dallas and in Texas. But, um, I mean, when, when you look at, like, the national organizing history, folks don't think of Dallas as, like, the folks that, like, are coming up in this this vein of movement building. And so to be able to um, create a space to not only get folks to understand base building and movement building um, and, and organizing and, and coalition building across the city um, has been really fun and interesting. And I think it is really laying a foundation for what I think generations of organizing will look like, um, infrastructure will look like in our city. And I'm, I'm really excited to see that happen through this Defund the Police campaign. Um, and yeah, it, it, and, and to Candace's point, it is legitimately changing the face of uh, Black leadership and Black organizing to where um, council members are looking to us first before they look to like the local abuser who leads a lot of those stuff out here or, you know, the, the, the white cis folks who lead much of the work out here. Um, and for us, that's super exciting because we know the work that we're doing is rooted in transformative justice and not the reform work that we've been seeing for years. Um, in our city. Should I ask a question for y'all? Please. Okay, okay cool. So um, I'm very interested in knowing how you make sure when you're working in these coalitions that you're centering Black women, queer women, trans women um, as part of these conversations and young Black folks as part of these conversations as well. Because in Providence, um, yeah, we work with coalitions, but a lot of them are these white-led nonprofits. The um, grassroots organizations are the smaller, just mixed with people of color. We're usually the ones that handle all of the um, on-the-ground organizing work. Um, but a lot of these organizations that are white-led, they tend to take up a lot of space, right? Um, how do y'all manage that, I guess, um, in making sure that voices are heard? Um, and I won't want to say necessarily um, catering to feelings because we're not going to do that, but making sure that it's understood and they pass that message along to their folks. Um, I'll say for the calls that I picked up when we were, when we were like, we need a coalition, we need to come together. Um, I legitimately called the folks who are rooted in grassroots organizations in my city. And so I didn't call the big nonprofit one. They're now emailing us to be a part of our work. Um, so I'm thinking of like ACLU and some other organizations that everyone knows, but like we didn't call them first. Um, and so many of the people that we're organizing with don't have a budget of, you know, a million dollars or so. They're, they're leg legitimately running off a cash app right now, you know? Um, and so uh, for us, it was really intentional. Um, and we have daily briefings as well, update calls. And so the folks who are non-Black, um, they they actually like don't have a decision making vote on our calls. Like we had a whole call about that last week. Um, the 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 white folks that show up on the calls, it is legitimately them getting tasked and like um, being either uh, I don't want to say security, but like they show up in a way that is like really um, helpful 
and not like us deferring like advice or leadership to them. They're actually like, what do you need? And we get to tell them things like that. Um, and so for, for me, I will say this is the first time that I've been in my organizing history I've ever experienced this type of coalition building, this type of collaborative organizing where they are looking to the black women, they are looking to the black trans folks, the GNC folks to lead and make the decisions. Um, and then they're throwing down with us when we go out into the streets and we're moving in unison when we do so. Um, and I, I honestly have never experienced it before, but the way that we've created our structure, like it, it started with grassroots folks. Like, um, and now, yeah, and now we're getting folks wanting to join who have the bigger names and the bigger budget. Didi, maybe you could jump in to respond to both these questions, both how as an organizer who's been working and building kind of institutional power for a number of years, how you relate to this moment of mass uprising that you can only do so much to sort of stage manage as an organizer. And also this, this other question around, uh, around coalition building with so many people of so many different sorts in the streets right now. Yeah, I mean, I think our, our role in, in BYP 100, we have chapters and, and cities, but we're also a national organization. Um, and me, I'm, I'm an organizer in the South. So there's already um, a long history of national coming, you know, national organizations coming in and trying to trying to control um, and also absorb a lot of the energy um, because national organizations will have more resources and just more access and, and, and more capacity to move things faster. And so we're wanting to make sure that our that our work um, is, is rooted in the community and is rooted in, in the type of organizing that happens at the local level. Um, I think what we are what we're trying to do and what we have been doing has been providing and offering as much information for people to make their own decisions as possible. Um, and so offering opportunities for people to get trained in direct action, for people to um, have access to actual materials and people. People are resources. People are means of also being safe. Um, organized community is a safe community. And so that's that's what that's the framework and kind of the intention uh, when we do go out in the streets and obviously and we're not trying to um, control folks, but make sure that people know the the available options and resources that they have um, to them, including the organizers that exist that exist on the ground that have been doing this work for a long time um, and then offer them an opportunity to be a part of a political home. I think I think one of the, the challenges is that there isn't enough young black organizing in this country. Um, if it is, it, it exists at the very local level, um, it may be statewide in certain places, but for the most part, it exists in, in cities, it exists in communities, it's, it's pretty local work. And so on the national, um, looking at it from the national level, there really isn't a whole lot of, of black, black organizing, but especially radical black organizing. Um, so I think just, and we, so we want to encourage there to be more black organizing and more black organizations and, and build, build, uh, the right relationships that are in deep alignment, um, so that we are constantly prepared for these moments when people will, when people will go out in the streets and do, do what needs to be done. I think, uh, to the question around, around centering, I think for, so for BYP 100, um, we are a, a black members based organization uh, and we move uh, we we our goal is for the freedom and liberation of black people 
from a black queer feminist lens. And so when people join the organization, they know from the jump where we stand in terms of our ideology. You can pretty much go anywhere, find a BYP 100 member, and they will be able to tell you just the basics of what it means um, to be moving through this world with a black queer feminist lens. Um, and and what that means for us, uh, or part of what, what that means for us is, is, is centering the most directly impacted by the issues that we're talking about. Um, which, which is the black people that are sitting, sitting at the margins and the margins of the margins and bringing them into the center in our process around deciding our campaigns, around strategy, um, around who gets access to resources, around who we think about um, when we're building up our solutions. Um, people know that from the very jump. Um, and so, and, and, and people have to come in and join our membership with a commitment to growing to, so we're also not assuming that people are coming into our organization ready-made, um, that people are just going to come in and they just they just got their politic intact. We don't even have that. Um, and so we we also want people that that are coming in with a commitment to transforming their own politic to be um, moving through a Black queer feminist lens and an abolitionist lens. Uh, Akili or Rosanna? Um, I can talk a little bit about what the experience has been here in Chicago. Um, I, I have not been a part of all of the conversations. I think Black-led organizations are having their own conversations and building coalition. And I think uh, some of us uh, radical council members are stepping aside and making sure that we are there to receive the demands and fight for them. Um, and we, we are starting to work in building coalitions, something that has been really interesting in the process. I did uh, uh, attend one meeting as a first attempt to build coalition. And it was interesting to see that a lot of organizations were coming together and expecting the Black-led organizations um, to have an answer for everything and to say, what do we do, right? And, and many of the Black-led organizations were more into, well, everybody has to be organized right now everybody has to be calling actions everybody has to be taking on the work right um so i think right now we are in in a very interesting um situation particularly with unions as well um how are unions going to support this work how are unions going to be making sure that that they are doing the work to get members of the unions to get on board and and do the work um so i i think it's it's going to be a, a very hard journey, uh, but but I think people are really um, putting a lot of effort and, and disposition into making sure that that work gets done. Achille? Let me say that I find the, the discussion uh, just tremendously interesting, uh, particularly for someone who is a bridge between yesterday and today um, with BLMLA. Um, you know, my day job is I'm the director of the Fannie Lou Hamer Institute. Um, and part of what we engage in is knowledge transfer um, to try to bring intergenerational uh, relationships together and, 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 and develop and learn from them, the lessons learned and the rest. And so I find the, the, the work that people are doing very interesting. Um, first of all, Black Lives Matter is, uh, is unapologetically Black. Um, and it, uh, if you look at our guiding principles, uh, you know, they are shaped by the, the women uh, who both have founded and lead BLM 
certainly Black Lives Matters in LA. And most of the 26 chapters that we have uh, in, the, in the US are led by women. That in and of itself, um, I think, creates a different both leadership style uh, and leadership approach. And that's been tremendously helpful. To make sure that we make room, comfort, and support for lesbian, gay, and transgender people. Um, and that uh, we center their interests, understanding, and positions um, in the work that we do. And then finally, building the coalitions are based upon, our coalitions are based upon three things. Uh, mutual respect, mutual support, and mutual benefit. Um, if one of them three are not there, we generally are not in, we, we are not in, we're not in coalition. Uh, but it takes work to get there. Um, that's the first thing. And so I think that a lot of what I'm hearing is, is what I'm hearing from, from folks, particularly from, from BYP 100, um, I think reflects the, the development and evolution of uh, organizing as many of us understand and knew it for, for a long time. So I'm glad to be a part of uh, the bridge between yesterday and today. Uh, I'm glad that I can learn from and am learning from uh, the generations around me. And I hope that I can share from generations that went ahead. Um, but I think the biggest part of it is one um, developing demands that grow out of the people's interest. Um, too often we have confused, and, and certainly people in my generation, I get this all the time, we have confused just being able to sit at the table with white folks, um, and somehow or another that's, that's progress. It hasn't you know, resulted in it, nothing measurable, um, and it generally doesn't benefit us at all. It benefits them because it makes them look reasonable, um, as opposed to the, maybe some of the biggest that they are. And so the notion of just sitting and dialoguing and communicating with white folks is, is certainly becoming a pass a um, activity. Now what is happening is the development and the advancement and the defense of demands uh, centered around black folks' interests, understanding, and positions. Uh, and I think that that has helped uh, connect certainly us to the people that, that we, are, we are working with uh, and being able to hold to those demands, even when uh, people in our own community, uh, some of y'all heard somebody say the old guard, uh, <clears throat> doesn't necessarily see or, or is in the same place. We have become a louder voice, quite frankly. Um, and while other people can get access to the mayor, can get access to the police chief, can get access to, to white folks, and they confuse that access with power. And one of the things we try to talk about within BLM LA is that that's not power. Just like Malcolm said, sitting at a table uh, and you don't have a plate doesn't make you a diamond. It makes you, you sitting at the table, but it don't make you a diamond. And so those are the dynamics that we are going to have to struggle with uh, at the local level, um, certainly with intergenerationally, and at the state and national level, um, if we want the kind of transformation that we are putting, that we want to see in place, um, they are going to have to be sometimes when we walk away from some of us, when we say thank you very much and we pursue our own course. 
Uh, there are going to have to be times when we don't embrace each other, you know, and we differ with each other. Now, I think as long as the difference is principle and not personal, then, uh, you know, we can move forward. Once it becomes personal, then what that does is it, it, it doesn't allow us to ever come back around. But if I have principle disagreement with people, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to share my disagreement on a principle basis, not on a personal basis. And then finally, I think the notion of uh, saying that this is a different time under different circumstances that require different sets of approaches and uh, recommendation and solution is something that we got to be prepared to say. And we got to be prepared to say to some of us, thank you very much for the work you've been doing, but uh, we got this. Um, you know, and, you know, and, and, and we don't call on you, but we appreciate you. We love you, you know, that kind of, but we got to move on. And I think each generation is going to have to uh, be responsible for, for advancing its own interests, but not based on the last generation. So whatever the last generation did to get where they are, ain't probably ain't gonna work to get where we're going. And that's uncomfortable. And, it's, and in some cases, it may even be hurtful. But I don't see any other way around it. Um, and you know, I talked about being a bridge. Well, a bridge you can use to walk over to the other side. Uh, that's what we need. We, we don't need people on one side saying, y'all got to go here, because this is how we used to do it. So, um, so that's kind of um, my remembrance and, and, and thinking. And I'm glad to be in the company of uh, people who help me see, understand, and accept a new day, a new time, and a new set of uh, efforts and conditions to make new transform transformative public policy. Um, I have uh, some more questions that I'm going to start incorporating audience questions. And I think, uh, I think Candace has to, has to run in a minute. So thank you very much, Candace. Yeah, apologies. I have to run early. Thank you for holding this space um, and for everyone willing to step into some radical imagination in this time. Thank you so much. Um, so next, um, and, and anyone can jump in to, to answer this first, who do you find to be your key opponents in, in defund? police work? Um, where do police unions fit into that matrix, matrix of power that's defending the status quo? And, and how are you going about defeating those opponents? And then, and then relatedly, this came up earlier, how are you approaching various attempts to water down strong defund demands, including these, these narrow proposals around use of force or bad apples or accountability that, that don't address the fundamental issue of the size and scope of policing that the defund demand is getting at? Um, yeah, I mean, our clear opponents for sure are uh, police chief, right? Um, you know, she is definitely um, trying to speak in favor of like humanize, humanizing her officers and saying that like, you know, they can't, they can't do all the things that the, the public wants us to do and, and, and call for, um, you know, the need for us to uh, move the services to other parts of the city uh, while not saying that we should defund. So it's just like a really interesting uh, narrative that she's putting out there. Um, and then the police union piece, you know, I was just on a call with my organization, Working Families Party, and we were talking about like, how do we want to show up around pushing our labor partners to get the police unions out? 
And, um, you know, I don't, I don't have an answer around that. I was, I mentioned to them that like, that's not our next step, but um, as someone who is organizing alongside um, labor unions, um, I definitely am interested in having that conversation and starting to push that and for them to actually be the leader on that, um, that piece. Um, but I do recognize that as we are winning our campaigns locally, that the police unions are going to come harder and they're going to start to become more loud and more public about the pushback around defunding the police. And so I'm definitely keeping that in the, my back pocket on how we need to address and um, just hold our force and hold our demands around the police unions. Um, I'm trying to remember your last question, Dan. I know I'm missing one more thing. In, in terms of how to deal with the attempts to kind of co-opt and water down the defund demand. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And- Yep, I mentioned this earlier, but for us, it really is at this point, like we, we have city council on our side for the most part, they're about to recess for the month of July. And so that's when they're gonna start talking about the budget, figuring out what they want it to look like, and then come back in August. And so we wanna start um, having um, proper education, workshop sessions, in person, online, um, and, and do some teachings, right? And start to talk about what do we mean when we say defund the police? talk about the history of policing, talk about capitalism, anti-blackness, all of these things that allow folks to understand why we are uh, pushing for these demands and why it is necessary that we move towards um, uh, no police and prisons in our communities, um, and then uh, move towards a series of people's assemblies. So Rakia Lumumba um, with Malcolm X Grassroots Movement uh, taught us how we can hold and have intentional people's assemblies across the city of Dallas. She um, did a training for us last week with our coalition. And uh, we want to have a weekly people's assemblies district by district across the city um, and start to get the community to tell us what they want that money to go to, right? When we start to advocate for uh, narcotics and the vice unit to be cut, that's $20 million. So what do you want $20 million to go to? And start to create a people's budget that when they come back in August, uh, we can say that we surveyed all these folks across the city. They told us what they wanted. Um, and this is what we're going to fight for for the next two months before they approve the budget in September. Um, and so for us, we're going to take the break that the city council is having and use that to amp up um, not only our message, but our demand, and also to get the people engaged and involved um, in, in what it looks like to actually fight for uh, a budget that actually goes back into the community. So... In Chicago, we have the different layers of opposition. We have the extreme opposition, which is going to be the FOP and the council members that are all in with FOP. And then you have the more like liberal sort of people that are going to talk about reform and that includes the mayor. Um, So I would say that all of them, we can see their opposition. And as I said before, they are going to have to be forced into this conversation um, through uh, popular pressure. And just as Mercedes just said, um, we're going to need a lot of popular education. We're going to need campaigns that are focused on helping people understand what we're trying to do and um, talking about the possibility of creating a completely different framework for safety um, and calling police for what it is, right? A racist institution. If, if we know that one in 1,000 Black men are going to die at the hands of the police, our approach to safety is racist. And it needs to be called out as such. And for, for a lot of people, that is going to be hard to understand if we don't go out there and make sure that we're having those conversations, that we're having, um, that we're having information going out all the time 
Um, so that's gonna that's the work that it's gonna take, and I think people are ready to do it. But also, we need to have presence on the streets at all times, and and organizations need to step up and call for those protests to happen and make sure that they're organizing. So I mean, it's gonna take uh, a lot of work, um, but I think people are up for the task to do it. Yeah, I mean, I think on the so on the local level in, in Durham, uh, we have a black woman that is our chief of police um and she comes from atlanta and uh people the she has been kind of just doing her promo um tour currently um and really being used propped up as an example of a of an ethical chief of police um in this moment and, and i think added on to the fact that she is a black woman um kind of it, positions her in a way that she's able to 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 be upfront and and be and sound like sound like she's with us um but and, and push for you know banning on chokeholds and, and pushing for uh there to be more training for de-escalation uh but she's not uh she's not with us um she's not on our side and i think on the, on the national level what that has looked like is uh the huge um I guess, policy platform that's been pushed uh, by Campaign Zero, the eight can't wait, um, which is which is not what we're asking for. Um, it's not what the people on the ground have been asking for. It's not the people with the people that have been organizing around defunding and divest divesting from the police have been asking for anything that's pushing for more training or more resources or more energy um, to be given to the police officers that is coming from, especially that's coming from from uh residents of the different cities is not where we're asking for um and to think about uh uh rashad brooks who was who was uh killed um this past week in atlanta um those cops had just gotten de-escalation training um right so uh, it isn't about it isn't about the training it, it, it isn't about the resources and we've always known that we've always known that um and so the the op for me, the opposition does look like um, when there when there are these uh, regressive reforms, re reformist reforms um, that come out that make it as if they're coming from our movements and coming from our language, and they are not. Um, and so, with that being said, I'm gonna drop the eight to abolition, uh, which is which is coming from our movements, which we're which we're using to really speak about this issue. Um, but we're pushing for our folks to be um, to to I think having more people. I think this is why petitions and demands is so important because it shows a, a it shows that it, on the individual level that there are people that are committing to what we what we are naming what we want, um, and so um, just like yeah, just continuing to push on this and really trying to um, get rid of this narrative that like representation is everything because it is not. Um, it, it is it it has a limit. Um, it, it's, it's, it has a limit and it doesn't speak to, it doesn't always speak to the moment and it doesn't speak to what people on the ground um, should be working for. And so, uh, I mean, for me at the national level and, and wor working with and, and talking to other national organizations, I'm encouraging folks that are about the, that are about the reformist reforms to just stay at the kiddie table, stay in the kiddie pool. Like that's that's which and that and it, you know you can be there. It's you know it's 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 nothing wrong with that, but it's not where we are, um, and it's not the deep dive work that we're trying to do. 
Um, and so I'm gonna drop that information in here, make sure y'all to make sure y'all take a look at that. But that's the language that we want to use. That is the narrative that we want to use. That's the push and the transformation that we're actually actually asking for um, when we ask for abolition um, is around defunding, divestment, disarming, demilitarizing, and delegitimizing the police and investing in our into our communities. Thank you, Didi. Uh, Rosanna wanted to follow up. Yeah, I I just wanted to add one of the of the limitations that we also have is um, people that get into office on radical platforms and with supportive movement, but then when they get into office, they get attached to a seat and then it's like the seat belongs to them and they don't want to do anything that is going to put at risk their ability to stay on the seat. And sometimes the logic of that is like, well, if I can do more for movement staying on the seat, so I'm just gonna like make sure that I sort of balance or step back or scale back so that I can keep the seat. But the reality is that we were elected for transformation and socialists go into office. I mean, as socialists, when we get into office, we need to be committed to do that work, to do the transformative work. Um, so I think that it is very important to make sure that movements are holding elected accountable um, for this work, that we cannot be diluting message, that we cannot be trying to scale back or even you know, become obstacles to what movement is trying to do. Our job is to bring forward the demands and legitimize them and make sure that, that is, we don't let them change the conversation. And if we have electeds that are doing that, then we need to make sure that those seats um, are, are, that other people are supported to go into those seats that are actually going to be about that work. We cannot be scared of losing our seats. Those are not our seats. Those are the seats of the movement that got us to that place. Um, and we need to make sure that we stay accountable to movement. So we cannot, we cannot allow that to happen. If, if we have three good years of pushing for this, then that's what we have. <laughs> um, we cannot be scared of losing our seats to do the work. And that needs to be clear and movement needs to make that clear to elected. I am so glad you are in office. Uh, Kimberly from Reclaim RI and Providence DSA wanted to jump in. Kimberly? Uh, yeah, so I just wanted to bring attention to the question that um, Arthur Flanders brought in the chat, which is, is it effective to shut down the unions when they try and hold public meeting like the NYPD union did? Um, specifically because we know unions are one of the biggest obstacles to getting accountability uh, in the system. So how do we deal with these unions when we know what, what side they've chosen? Um, and we also know the perception that like maybe the wider public might think, which is like union, oh, that must be good. But I mean, the police union is, I mean, incredibly racist. Um, they're essentially an enemy. So what do we do about them? And since we only have 50 minutes, let, let me add another question from the chat onto, onto Kimberly's that's related, which is just tactical in general. What tactics have you found like most helpful in moving things? Um, and maybe like what's a, what's a thing you tried that maybe didn't work so well? <laughs> I was just gonna say, again, to my point, um, in WFP, we, we are legitimately trying to figure this out and also be in conversation with our labor leaders nationally and on the ground. but. It is, it is definitely their fight. Like they have to be at the forefront of it as um, 
someone who is in a union in my own organization, I do believe that like these state federations have to be the folks who actually say it. Like we can push them internally, but like I can't come out and be the folks who are organizing around getting the police unions out knowing that we need the state federations, AFL. We need those folks to be the, the, the people on record saying that you cannot be in our union. You are not a union. You cannot be a part of our federation. And so um, I think for us, for folks who are in community, with labor leaders in your own community, across the state, nationally, that they need to be pushed to actually be the folks who lead this effort. Um, and yeah, and go from there. Akili? Well, uh, we are beginning to have that conversation out here. And one of the things I'm trying to do is distinguish between, a, a, a public distinguish between a labor union uh, and these police associations. Um, that's the first thing. In part because uh, the the labor movement has a number of internal struggles that they got to go through, and external uh, perceptions that people have. And so, when you feed into those perceptions that the police unions or the police associations are one generally unaccountable, two generally anti-black um, and racist, uh, and that they they narrowly, they are a narrow interest, a real narrow interest. Um, and so, you know, that, that is, that, that's the kind of um, tight, you know, work we got to walk because we support, um, you know, progressive unions. We, we support um, uh, unions that really are fighting for, like the fight for 15 and the rest, um, who are really fighting uh, for social justice. These associations are simply protecting their members at all costs. Um, you know, it doesn't matter if they kill people, it doesn't matter if they, you know, if they lie on people, it, you know, they're protected at all costs. And so we have to work on distinguishing them. I, I have the uh, fortune of having worked in the labor movement for many years, starting with Cesar Chavez. And, and Cesar, the man that trained Cesar trained me. And so um, my understanding, and one of the things that Cesar used to talk about is with his own members, with farm workers, was that we needed to see the, the farm worker movement as a movement around social justice, that we can't be just concerned about our members because our members live in communities. and you know, they are, they don't have health care, they don't have, their families don't have health care and the rest. And so, and I helped start the first uh, union for domestic workers, and I worked for SEIU. And so my understanding about labor is distinct and different from, you know, what I see with the PPLs of the world. And so I think part of what we are going to have to do both internally and externally, internally, we are going to have to challenge our sisters and brothers in the progressive unions. Uh, Externally, we are going to have to make the case through popular education uh, and information that the police associations are purely centered around protecting uh, bad cops, quite frankly. Um, and that's another reason why we need to defund the police, uh, <laughs> quite frankly. Uh, I mean, so that, so that argument, we're beginning to wrap within this, you know, with our whole centerpiece around defund the police because they got a, a, uh, an association that doesn't uh, allow them to be held accountable. Didi, can you talk about uh, maybe not just that, but the tactical question more generally, what you're seeing be most effective and? I mean, I feel like building 
I mean, building coalitions is part of the strategy, but building coalitions with organizations that also have an interest in investing in investment in the communities um, and may not be in like like complete alignment with, I mean, when we first started uh, Durham Beyond Policing, this is before Defund the Police was as popular as it is. So it's like 2016 where people was like, I don't know about not giving money to the police, but we should definitely give more money to this, you know? And so like people was on that. And so we were like, okay, we can work with that. We can work with that. Um, and, and we, and we did. Um, we worked with, you know, neighborhood organizations or organizations of parents that was like more money needs to be put into rec centers, more money needs to be put into after school care, more money needs to be put into education in our schools, food, homes, whatever. Like there was so, always a, a, a pocket of people that we could find that was like, yes, I agree with the investment in our in our communities. And then we could bring them along the way um, around around our 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 other ultimate goal, which is which is uh, divestment from the police. Um, and so, I mean, it's not something that works everywhere, for sure. Um, and uh, yeah, and I think Durham, Durham can be something specific, but I think that that, that was necessary for us in the beginning um, to build up to build up our base and start to get the energy moving around the Durham beyond policing. Um, and also uh, when when folks were, were running for office, um, you know, it would be us, it would be our community, our campaign, and the other the the, the other groups of people that we were working with um, that will hold that would figure out how we're gonna hold them accountable. And we would decide on that collectively. Um, so we would have candidate forums where we would ask them, do you believe in a Durham beyond policing? And what does that mean to you? Um, and so an opportunity for, for us to really engage with them and to hold them to to their own words um, around what they what they what their vision is, what they see for the future of Durham, um, where, where policing doesn't exist. Um, and so that's that's something that has worked for I mean, along with like protests and shutting down meetings and all that fun stuff. Um, uh, building with organizations that may not be as likely um, as partners. Uh, but there's a piece of the campaign that they can get behind um, to really build the base. Yeah, um, we only have uh, six more minutes left, but something that a few people uh, have have asked is sort of how does this this defund piece? Why does it why is it able to work this magic that automatically gets people thinking about what we should be funding? And how does how do you then build coalitions with 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 that aspect in terms of um, you know, defund kind of in the most narrow sense means what we don't want to see, which is all these police and all these prisons. Um, but immediately it starts all these conversations about what we do want to see. So how is that, how do, how do you, how do you work those two sides together? And then how do you use that in turn to build coalitions and power? Um, I think one day, one way, a couple of ways that we've done that is by asking people like, Hey, you know, did you know that our city is going to build a $71 million police headquarters? No, you probably didn't know that. Well, if you had $71 million to spend on your city, what would it be? Um, and people will name hundreds and hundreds of things um, that are not policing, that are not the police, that are not a police headquarters. Um, and so that helps, that pushes um, folks in, in, in thinking about what are the alternatives that we should 
that we should and could be pushing for. Um, and also just like $71 million is such a large amount of money. It's like unfathomable that people would spend this much money on police. Um, and so just like, just getting the getting the ridiculousness into into other people's heads is 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 one way um, that we that we think about it. I think another way is thinking about like just like the idea of defunding is just like well some kind of way they figure out how to defund our education. There's never like well what will be the alternative? Will there be massive you know like you know will it be a massive thing? Because I think people just like see us closing prisons and imagine anarchy or something like that, or like, you know, what, what people would see in the movies and, uh, and actually being like, well, some kind of way they defund education, some kind of way they take away money from housing, some kind of way they, they defund all of these things that people really need. And some kind of way the police always have what they need. Some kind of way they always have what they need and they're always able to ask for more and get it for years. Um, and so just like asking the right questions um, to our people um, and, and asking intentional questions that helps us to, to be in a place where we can dream and organize together uh, around, around the new future. We have time for one or two more comments from our guests, whoever wants to jump in. Well, let me jump in right quick because one of the things that we are struggling against and, and pushing out very fast is attacking the culture of fear and punishment. Uh, in LA, the, the police have been able to get unlimited resources whenever they want. All they got to do is raise the gangs. Um, and the perception is in LA, in South LA, where, where we live, that there are gangs on every corner, on every, you know, in every neighborhood. Uh, 24 hours a day and they're shooting at each other. Um, that fear uh, that, that is projected by the police and then the, all, you know, the punishment. So the culture of fear and punishment has to be attacked, has to be dealt with, and has to be overcome. At last comments, Kia Mercedes, Rosanna. Yeah, so here in Providence, you know, there are so many people already working on um, issues that are so directly related to defunding, um, but we really haven't had the defunding conversation before. This is so new for us, um, at least for um, DARE and some other organizations that we work with. But drawing that, that connection between defunding and the more money for education and conversation, more money for social services, right? Um, making those connections and saying, look, they're saying we don't have the money, it's there this is where you can get that money from, right? The police budget. Um, so having those conversations um, and then also talking to, getting new community members that I've never seen before, um, getting engaged in these conversations um, and getting them activated and getting their input because they're younger, they're new, um, and they're really excited about this um, is really important too. Yes, and I just dropped, uh Reclaim our eyes uh, petition for a people's budget into the chat. Please sign and circulate it far and wide, everybody. Uh, Mercedes and Rosanna, and then we'll close up. I just want to say it's, it, it, I've learned a lot from being on this call with y'all. Appreciate it. I, I want to say that um, I have been exhausted in the last year <laughs> and this moment even though it was brought to us through an incredible amount of pain 
um, has definitely energized me and allowed me to understand that there is a possibility for real transformation. I'm really grateful to be doing this work alongside all of you. So thank you. Yeah, I know, um, I know we're winning when I get on calls like this and folks <laughs> have like all these amazing offerings of what they did and like, you know, when they filled up and how they like were better the next year. So like, I know we're on the path to victory around abolition. Well, thank you everyone so much for, for joining us. Uh, the Everyone who uh, logged on to view and listened to this and especially all of our amazing guests who took time out from all the really important organizing work they're doing all over the country. And uh, those of you in Rhode Island, please again, sign our people's budget petition and get involved with Reclaim, get involved with DARE, get involved in all the groups in Rhode Island who are working to defund the police in Providence and for a, to resist the austerity budget on the state level, because those are definitely interlinked huge fights. Thank you so, so much. I really appreciate it. This was wonderful. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said, after noting that the police, the judiciary, and the administration are not deputies of civil society itself, which manages its own general interest in and through them. Rather, they are office holders of the state whose purpose is to manage the state in opposition to civil society. While other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We are posting new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis, music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our communications coordinators are Julia Rock and Zachary Nin. Our senior advisor is Thea Riofrancos. Check out our vast archives at thedigradio.com. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio. Same on Facebook. And please find us wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe. If it's on iTunes or wherever, please also rank and review us. Five stars and a positive review, I hope, because those reviews help introduce us to new listeners. What really does that is telling your friends about the show. Please make propaganda for us and do find us at patreon.com slash the dig and make a monthly contribution to keep this operation going strong. Even a few bucks is huge. Mm-hmm.